Here we are at Potten Market. The sound you just heard was the clinking of ice against glass, the universal signal that we are about to talk about drinking, specifically drinking spiritous beverages. Newark has long been a hub for alcohol production and consumption. The 19th century saw massive waves of immigrant groups with established drinking cultures. The Germans with their beer, the Irish and Scots with their whiskey, just to name a few. Because of these waves, several major breweries set up shop here, most famously Ballantyne's, whose family mansion still stands near Washington Park and is part of the Newark Museum. Aside from beer, we also had plenty of distilleries making rum, whiskey, and gin. Then, in 1919, the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution was ratified and Prohibition hit. Fun fact, New Jersey was the 46th and last state to ratify the amendment, ratifying it only three years after the 18th Amendment went into effect and the Volstead Act was already in full force. Prohibition was both amazing and devastating for this city. On the one hand, we had the highest amount of speakeasies per capita. Jazz music and liquor flowed through the streets. On the other hand, large factories that had produced amazing spirits for almost a century shut down. The repeal of Prohibition did not mean a return to business as usual, though. The post-war years saw the consolidation of major breweries and distilleries. Although in the last 20 years there had been a a boom of local breweries and spirits, New Jersey and Newark's Byzantine liquor laws, something which we will talk about in this episode, have really stifled the explosive growth of cocktail bars and local breweries and distilleries when we compare this to New York, Boston, and Philly. To talk about what it's like to be a retailer and a distiller in Newark, I have with me Gil Speyer and John Ward. John grew up in Austin, Texas, spending his days golfing, swimming, fishing, and getting on Lake Travis whenever he could. In August 2018, John's wife wanted to be closer to her parents in New Jersey, where she was born and raised. John found Cool Vines, a small family-owned wine, beer, and spirits retailer just down the street from his new home. A longtime beer geek, wine and spirits aficionado, and enthusiastic jack-of-all-trades, it didn't take long for him to shine. After six months at Cool Vines powerhouse location, he was selected to be the point man for Cool Vines Newark. Most nights you'll find him in the Haynes building, out on, out on the floor of Cool Vines Newark, chatting up with locals, flashing a big smile, and laughing as he happily discusses wine, beer, and spirits, and Newark. Also here, we have All Points West founder Gil Spare who was born and raised in New York and educated as an architect in New Orleans. Both cities were essential to the formation and continuation of American cocktail culture, and Gil had always viewed the bottles with their mysterious liquids and concoctions that came out of the hands of bartenders as near magical in their properties. Having lived in Newark, New Jersey for the last 16 years, he wondered if Newark would ever have something to replace the pride the city once took in her beers, music clubs, and wondered if Newark could ever again have an affirming beverage culture like the one it once had. All Points West Distillery is his attempt to revive this lost essence. So we have our two guests here, and I just want to start by throwing it over um, to each of them, and we'll start, I guess, with Gil, um, about how All Points West came to be. Sure. Well, I moved to Newark um, basically because I, I love a certain presence of loss. I mean, I loved abandoned industrial buildings, and the idea of living in them and forming a life around them was something that drew me here because they still were accessible. Um, But when I was here, I actually wanted to find out about the history of those buildings. I wanted to find out what happened in them, how they were occupied, who occupied them. And that really led me to understand about um, Newark's beverage history, the breweries, the immigrants that made the beers. And I started to kind of uh, fixate on that a little bit. And the idea came to me of why not trying to bring back small-scale alcohol beverage production to Newark. And um, I started to see whether that was feasible. And when it turned out that it was, that the state laws would allow it, that the city would allow it, and that the city would actually encourage it, I took it seriously and um, got a loan and started making 
you know, whiskey and gin and vodka. Okay, so um, I just want to um, ask you a few questions because some of our listeners, um, you know, they probably drink, um, you know, once in a while, but they may not know the whole process and difference between what's a brewery, what's a cidery, what's a distillery, what's a winery, right? Could you explain what exactly a distillery is and what's the process that goes into making distilled spirits? Sure. So a distillery um, basically has every function that you would have in a winery or a brewery. So in a winery, you have grapes. Um, grapes have sugars, and the sugars are fermentable. So you leave grapes out, yeast will go on those grapes and start to consume the sugars and make alcohol. With a beer, you have the added step of brewing, where you actually have to convert the starches in the grains into sugars before you do your fermentation. And with distilling, you do both brewing and fermenting, and then you do distilling. And distilling, you actually separate out the waters from the alcohol, condensing the alcohol, and creating something that, in my mind, can preserve flavors and even create flavors that just um, aren't available in the lighter, lighter beverages. And what do you guys produce at All Points, Wes? Sure. We produce vodka, we produce gin, and we produce whiskeys. And uh, just, you know, again, assuming no one knows anything, mm -hmm. what's the difference between a vodka, a whiskey, and a gin? History. Ah. So... Um, all the spirits we make are from cereal grains, and cereal grains start um, being distilled as simple malted barley spirit. Uh, wasn't aged, wasn't particularly good, and after a while, um, they took different divergent paths. So whiskey became refining the way that you distill and ferment to create flavors inherent to the fermentation and distilling process. Gin is about using the alcohols and waters to extract flavors from botanicals and preserve those flavors in alcohol. And vodka is about making something as clear and as pleasing in mouthfeel as possible and as light as possible. It's about almost removing flavors. And so they all go in three very different directions, and they all use um, you know, a shared set of techniques and a shared set of histories. So I, I love doing all three of them. They inform each other. Oh, wow. Oh, so you, and just to make it clear, so you're saying like you basically start with the same thing, but you can go in three so, different directions. Uh, so I personally don't. I start with very different sources for okay. the different spirits. But in theory, you could have a, you know, a single malt distillery and use that same spirit to make both a vodka and a gin and you can um, and a whiskey. Wow. Um, okay, I'm going to turn over to John now. So could you tell the story of um, Cool Vines here in Newark and how it came to be? Yeah, so uh, Cool Vines is a family-owned uh, wine, beer, and spirit store. Uh, started out with stores in Westfield and Princeton. Uh, wanted to open up a store in Jersey City, so they sold the Westfield store. Um, after having some good success in Jersey City, uh, put two stores there, so we sold the store in Princeton. Um, from there, we had some people in Newark contact us about an opportunity here uh, in the Hay & Company building right there across from Whole Foods in the atrium. And it was a good opportunity, uh, so uh, we jumped on that as well. And now we operate three stores, one in Newark and uh, the two in Jersey City. Nice. And um, so do you, what is it with about the Haynes Building space in particular that attracted Cool Vines to opening there as opposed to somewhere else in Newark? Well, it's a historic building. Uh, it's downtown. There really isn't a whole lot in that area uh, to serve the neighborhood. Uh, you have some built-in traffic, obviously, with the Whole Foods being there. So that's, as a retailer, that's uh, something advantageous to us. So, uh, yeah, everything kind of lined up, and it was a good opportunity. So uh, we jumped on it. Yeah, it's kind of amazing when you walk down that, uh, what used to be a department store, um, and that beautiful staircase. You know, you're basically flanked by your high-end grocery store, and then your sort of high-end, you know, um, 
liquor establishment, which is just amazing to see. Um, I do recommend our listeners, if you haven't been yet, to go to the Haynes Building and just see both of these in, in operation. Um, and so I want to turn it over to both of you and ask the question about how do you, how's the reception been? Do you have any specific stories or just general feelings about being here in Newark and people interacting with what you guys produce and sell? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been wonderful. Um, people have really loved the idea of what I'm doing here. They've come in to support me. They've helped promote. They've talked about the spirits that I'm making. They've talked about the brand. They've brought people in. I have um, people who every single time they have a visitor in town, they bring them to the distillery. So people are bringing in people from all over the world, literally, um, because um, they think that it's a fun destination, and that's what it's become. It's become a destination where we talk about Newark, where we talk about spirits. It's educational, it's delicious, and mm -hmm. um, and, and, and people have, have keyed into it. Um, I mean, I think that Newark used to be a place that had a very different identity from what it has now. It was a place where musicians, comedians would stop in on their way to their big shows in New York City. It's a place where people would, you know, start their careers and become famous just playing out in Newark clubs. Um, and, and the idea of doing something that's a destination in Newark, doing something that, that has Newark as part of its branding and becomes part of Newark's branding, that reciprocity, is something that I really love. Uh, and, and the city has embraced it, and, and I embrace the city. It's, mm -hmm. it's terrific. Yeah, to echo that. Um once we opened up in Newark, the first thing I noticed was the excitement from the customer base. Uh, having been in Jersey City for a few years, some of that initial excitement, you know, is, is just like an everyday thing. People just shop there. Whereas in Newark, every day people come in, they thank us for opening up. They say how this neighborhood needed something like this. Uh, they're excited to try new wines. They're excited to try craft beers, craft spirits. We get a lot of people coming in specifically asking for the All Points West stuff. Uh, so, you know, it's, I think it's a good relationship. To me, as the general manager, it's just exciting to see the enthusiasm from uh, our customer base. Yeah, and I, I want to do a nice shout out to Cool Vines, and not to inject my own personal feelings um, into the episode, but I was amazed when you guys opened, not just at the selection. I had been anticipating you guys for a while. I, you know, I saw on social media and kept counting down the days until you would open up. And then I saw you all post your hours, and it, it just blew my mind because not a lot of institutions in Newark have the extended hours that you, you guys do. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like 10 to 9 usually, right? Yeah, we're open at 9 o'clock every night. That's, so I mean... Seven days a week. Yeah, and there's not many other stores in that area particularly that are open that late, um, with the exception of maybe a grocery store or, I guess, you know, an eating establishment or a bar. Um and I, you know, some of the listeners know this about me. I'm a big mixologist, and sometimes, you know, that's crucial to be not have to trek out to, you know, um, Bottle King out in, like, you know, the suburbs or to Jersey City, right, to try to find something that I can use. And, and I just wanted to thank you for, for you know, taking that step forward. Um, but uh, I just actually wanted to talk, Gil, quickly about, um, I think one of the biggest things that happened to you this year, which was the United Magazine um, story. Could you explain what happened there? Sure. Um, so we were invited to take part in a piece called Three Perfect Days in Newark, where United decided to actually, for the first time I think ever, profile their hub as a tourist destination. And so they went through and visited a number of uh, both Newark institutions, old and new, and, and wrote about them. Um, 
they had a production crew come in from the UK, they had good photographers come in, and they put together a piece that I thought really highlighted um, some of the best and least known things in Newark. Uh, so I was happy to take a part in it. Uh, did it and did you see an increase in, in uh, traffic to your distillery? That was the amazing thing. So people have actually come in from really remote locations. I had somebody come in from Manchester, England. I had some you know, people come in from Western Pennsylvania, people come in from upstate New York. Uh, I don't think they got in their car in Syracuse and drove down to the distillery. But uh, the fact that they knew about something that was worth visiting in town meant that they'd stopped in on their way, you know, in and out of international flights. And so it did make a difference, not in terms of, you know, revenue, but it made a difference in terms of uh, kind of how, how far my reach has been at the extremities of of my accounts or my oh, customers. Nice. And and um, you just to uh, explain what how it works at the distillery. Um, you're not a proper bar, right? No. So New Jersey um, has put certain restrictions connected with their um, supplier licenses. So their Class A licenses, which would be the breweries, the wineries, and the distilleries, um, have certain things that they can do, which um, producers normally would not be able to do, which is serve cocktails. But they didn't want this to be a runaround around a liquor license. Um, as, uh, and as just I just want to stop you for a second. I want to explain. Can you explain what a liquor license is and how unique to Jersey this whole that the, I mean, liquor licenses exist in other states, mm -hmm. but New Jersey's unique liquor license system. Could you explain that quickly? So I'm I'm, I'm far from an expert. Yeah. I'm not an attorney, but um, Newark, sorry, New Jersey's system locked in place the number of liquor licenses at some period in the past. I believe it was at the repeal of prohibition. And so, um, but I could be I could be wrong about mm -hmm. that. I don't know the exact history. Um, and so there is a sense that cities that used to have a large population have a lot of excess liquor licenses, and cities that are growing don't meet the population criteria to get new liquor licenses. So liquor licenses have actually become a commodity as opposed to just a license. Right. And they're actually traded um, like, like any other commodity, and depending on the geographic area where they're located, they have sometimes a very high value and sometimes literally no value Can, at all. Just put a number on that. Like, I, I, I've seen numbers, but do you, do you have an example of a number? Sure. The, the spread would be between $50,000 and a million dollars. Yeah. I, I feel like an average sometimes I've seen is 200000 for one of these. And that's just a, the ability, listeners, to sell alcohol as, a, as an eating establishment, I mm -hmm. guess. There was a, a cheesecake factory that paid uh, $1.3 for theirs, $1.3 million. Do you know what, like in a suburb somewhere? Uh, it's at the mall. Like, I'm not from New Jersey, yeah, so yeah. it's like a, one of the hills, like a cherry hill or a short hill or oh, something. Those are very <laughs> far hills from each other. But it, they totally are very similar, so it's actually funny that you you come them together. hill mall. But that totally makes sense. I, the Short Hills Mall is one of the most high-end malls I in, think this, that's it. in the country, let alone in yeah. New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised. Although I, I'm actually surprised they have a cheesecake factory just because of how high, and high end that place is. Not to, you know, smash cheesecake uh, factory. They have an amazing shrimp sandwich, um, <laughs> but uh, I think they still have it. Um, but the, the, you're getting across the point that yeah. 1.3 million dollars. They, they're going to sell at least that much alcohol within. Uh, uh, was it? I don't know. Five year, ten year. I don't know how long their plans are, but yeah. um, they would have to recoup that right. that outlay. Um, so sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Gil, but like that, you know that. I just wanted you to explain the liquor license system just because I think a lot of people don't understand right. why it's so different to drink in Boston or New York City as opposed to New York. Right, but at the same time, um, New Jersey wanted to encourage uh, new business. They wanted to encourage new types of employment. So they allowed for craft breweries and craft 
distilleries, they just don't allow them to operate as restaurants or as proper bars. So we have a tour requirement, and uh, and we cannot sell food. So it really separates the, the type of establishment. You go to many other parts of the country, and you'll go to you know a, um, a brew pub yeah. where they have production facilities and a kitchen, and that's not something that you'd find here outside of wineries. Wineries and cideries are agricultural, and they have a little more leeway than yeah. the breweries and distilleries. Um, yeah, actually, one of my favorite breweries, um, it's in Jersey City. I won't say who it is because there's several at least. So, um, but um, And you guys probably know who they are. But, like, the whole tour thing, which is a requirement you're supposed to do, it's become so pro forma there. Like, you literally can go in, look, like, give it, like, you know, sort of like a little, you know, hand over eyes, like, you know, search around. And then they'll give you the, the, um, the uh, there's like a little um, wristband that you get to say that you've done the tour. And then you can go and do your drinking. And uh, it's just so silly at this point. And I, I understand that I'm injecting a little bit of my editorial opinion here. But, like, um, it is a very unique thing. Because when I go to Boston, um, it's a very, very different experience. And there are breweries everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I'm not kidding. You can throw a stone and hit a distillery or a brewery in Boston. Um, and New York City, too. I mean, not as many breweries and distilleries. Um, there's a little more restriction about distilleries in New York City. I think there's only two operating distilleries. In um, in New York City proper, although I might be wrong on that, um, but you know there are breweries that are popping up everywhere, and we don't have these same kind of restrictions. And I keep wondering, um, in your professional opinion, do you think that stifles the proliferation of breweries and distilleries? Um, do you think it has no effect? I mean, I mean, I think it stifles the development of many downtowns in New Jersey. There's a large number of towns that want to keep people in their downtowns, want more active nightlife, and they can't do it. They can't do it because they have two restaurants that have the ability to serve alcohol. Mm -hmm. So breweries have added to that, distilleries have added to that, but uh, what what I think is much more exciting is New York. If a town hits, you can have 20 restaurants open downtown, and they can just go. They apply for the license. Three or four months later, they have the license. They have the build-out expenses, and that's it. It's not an added expense that really makes getting into the hospitality industry um, prohibitive in large parts of the state. Yeah. Is there like a retail perspective? You know, like how, I don't know if they have an opinion on the whole scheme, but like what's it like being in the retail business and dealing with those those laws? Well, it's it's interesting. It it does uh, limit the number of places you can buy spirits, uh, and and one side effect of that is I feel like in New Jersey, the community feels like the liquor store belongs to them more because there's just not as many. Um, where I'm from in Austin, you can go into any Seven Eleven, you can go into any store, you can buy beer, you can buy wine at Walgreens when you're getting your medication. I mean, you can buy it anywhere. Uh, whereas here, it's very limited. There's only certain places you can go to get it. So those places then become like part of the community. And so there's certain things that people expect, certain th things that people want. And so we have to be, you know, we have to be conscious of that and think right. about how we're serving our community. And uh, yeah, it, it limits the competition a little bit, but it also um, really puts a lot of focus on the people who do have those licenses. Yeah, and actually I want to be fair here because I feel like I, I am smashing the scheme, but there is, um, there's some interesting aspects to it. So. Uh, I'm a big fan of a place called Raymond's up in um, Montclair. Um, I highly recommend them. They also have a place in Ridgewood. Um, and I go there for brunch quite often. Um, and one of the cool things you could do there is bring your own spirit, right? And that's partly because if, it, if this were any other state, Raymond's would totally have its own bar and right. sell its own alcohol. And um, I don't know if you guys have eat, eaten at a restaurant that serves alcohol, but usually you end up sometimes paying more for the alcohol. Not always, but like, you know, sometimes you could pay more for a bottle of wine than you do for the entire meal. 
And what's really cool is that Raymond's, if I go there at a particular time, either I can bring my own thing or I can hop over next door to a Montevino, another amazing um, produ- um, retailer, and uh, grab a bottle and bring it and eat quality food and pay a reasonable price for a bottle of, of um, you know, wine that goes with brunch. Um, so as much as I am complaining, I realize that there are some interesting aspects that it does force some food establishments to focus on their food and not so much on trying to, you know, upsell people on alcohol. Um, well, that's the rub though. Yeah. Right. So, um, because these restaurants can't afford a liquor license, essentially they have to become BYOBs, yeah. which helps a retailer like me because then people come to buy their wine for me and then go to whatever restaurant they're going to go to. But at the same time, like I see the side of it from the restaurants, you, you do see a lot of restaurant turnover in the state. Uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit harder to stay open and, and to make the money you need to make if you can't profit off beer, wine, and spirits. So I get that too. I see it from the restaurant side as well. And but, I, the, but there's another downside to the retailers. Um, so there's really two types of retailers. The, there's the, the ones that are very large that rely on the spirits brands doing marketing. What, what kind of retailers are I'm, we talking I'm talking about? I'm talking about liquor stores. Liquor stores, okay. Yeah. And they will compete on price, and mm-hmm. they will have an uneducated staff. They will not um, engage the consumers. They're there to get as much rents as possible from that license because that license is so expensive. Mm-hmm. And then there's another set of stores, the stores that have a much more curated shelf set, that have an educated sales staff, and that are trying to you know, have a higher margin but offer value for that, offering consumer education, um, a very well-selected choice. Um, and what's being squeezed out is, 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 is the stores that are you know, n- neither one or the other. They're not the big warehouse, and they haven't actually taken the time to educate their staff and develop a nice set. And um, so I think one of the things that, that's exciting is, uh, not just me, but, but all of the craft distilleries in New Jersey, we're kind of offering a story to give to these um, intermediate stores, the ones that won't, won't have one themselves, offer them a slightly higher margin, slightly higher quality product that allows them to differentiate themselves from the big box stores that really don't want to deal with us. And, um, and that's... Um, you, you, know, about you as a distiller? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, some of them. So, so some of them are open to it, some of them aren't. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and that dynamic is, is really sh- also partially shaped by how rare the licenses are and how expensive they are. Um, so you, you have to, you have a pressure. You have a pressure because you're sitting on top of an asset and an asset that has value and you need to have the rents to justify the cost of the asset. And so um, you know, you're not just covering your overhead. You're covering overhead and whatever, you had, whatever loan you had by that license. Mm. Well, I'd say there's a third type of store. And that would be the one that has the curated inventory, the educated staff, and great prices. And that would be your cool vines. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's just amazing to see the proliferation of cool vines and you know, stores that are also aligned with that mission um, of educating and providing um, a, a wide array of uh, selection. But I actually wanted to talk about another aspect, because we've talked about retailing, we've talked about production. But um, something that uh, hits, I think, Gil a little bit harder than John but, or Cool Vines, which is distribution. And I'm wondering, can you explain what distribution is and how you, much you rely on that for getting your stuff out there? Sure. So um, there's a three-tier system in New Jersey, uh, in many states. And that three-tier system separates um, suppliers, which could be either importers or um, actual producers, distributors who sell to the retail establishments and the retail establishments. 
And they made a very, very generous provision when they prepared my license. Um, in, in the craft distillery license, we're allowed to actually circumvent the three-tier system. Mm -hmm. So we can sell directly to retailers, which means that to the extent that, um, you know, it works, which is, you know, in a very tight geographic area, we're not running out trucks, we're not a large enough facility to do that, we can sell directly to the stores and cut out the distributor. Um, it's not that we're, you know, having much higher margins because of it, because the cost of actually supporting the accounts, doing the logistics, doing the estate excise tax is really at a small scale more expensive than going with the distributor, but it allows us to start the account relationships before we have to decide who's going to basically expand the brand. And, and that's good because, you know, right two years ago when I started, I didn't really get a sense of how the distributors were different. And now that I've been doing part of their job for two years, <laughs> I really understand what, what, what separates them. And I'm really starting to hone in on the type of distributor I want for the next phase of expansion. And that changes for New York, right? I'm guessing because is your spirit available in my, New York my City? My spirit is available in New York City. Um, very few retailers. We do the fulfillment ourselves, and we have a company that does clearance for us. Um, to, not to get too technical, but New York is what's called a no-touch state, which means you can fulfill to a retailer from an out-of-state warehouse. So there are paper-only distributing companies that will do the clearance for you in-state. They do the invoicing. They technically own the spirit the moment it leaves your warehouse. And there are established companies, uh, three or four, that do this. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much variety in New York, because in New York you can literally ship a case directly to a retailer um, and not you, you technically have a New York distributor, but it's not really. It's, it's, in, it's in paper only. So I just want to share my sympathy with the listeners out there. Um, I'm actually a lawyer by training, and um, many of you know this. And I've always wanted to write a book on alcohol law, uh, what, we, what in the profession is called a treatise. And I thought this would be a really cool pet project. But I, I just gave up on any sense of doing that because... Uh, you just listen to Gil right now. I mean, this is insane. <laughs> like, the, the, the sort of, you know, nuanced and, like... Um, incredibly intricate ecosystem of laws that there are federal, state, and even you know local. There can be local laws around alcohol, um, from you know the taxing at the federal level to the state's control of where things can go and who can touch them. Um, and it's just amazing to think that like that's what you both operate in is in this very very um, you know interesting system. And I'm wondering, is there anything, uh, John, you could share about being on the retailer side about trying to get local? breweries, spirits, and ciders, and whatnot, like... Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. In mm -hmm. e, um, if it is made in New Jersey, I can sell it. Oh, cool. Uh, so that's good. So uh, that makes that part easy. Uh, but if it's not made in New Jersey, then it has to be distributed by someone who is based in New, New Jersey. So I'll have people come to me all the time, they go, oh, great, you do, you do craft beer. I had this amazing beer in San Diego. Can you get it? And it's like, well, do they have a distributor that works with them mm -hmm. in New Jersey? No. Well, then the answer is no, I cannot get it. So we're limited to, to those two things. Is it made here? Is it distributed here? Nice. Um, I, just a little trivia, like uh, asking you guys, um, do you guys, are any of you familiar with the Pennsylvania, Oregon system? No. Oh, how it works there? Oh, it's insane. Sure, the, uh, the, the, the bailment system and yeah. um, control states. Yeah, can you explain what a control state is? No, it confuses <laughs> me. Uh, yes, I, I can explain what a control state is. Um, basically, the state owns the liquor stores. It's insane. And you apply at the state level to have your spirits carried in the state. And when they accept it, you have to decide as a supplier how much inventory you want to move into one of their bailment warehouses. And they then tr start charging you storage fees. 
and then you try to go and solicit um, sales. So you have to make a major investment in both time and inventory and capital just to, before you you know sell a single bottle. It um, can be a very successful system um, if you support you know your placements there, but you have to go in um, you know full bore and you have to be carried by many many stores or it doesn't work for you. I've heard bartenders um, from Oregon, particularly Oregon, because Portland um, is like a center of drinking culture in America. Um, you know, and it's the newest one. So it used to be that New York City, New Orleans, um, San Francisco to an extent um, were like really big centers of like cocktails and cocktail creation. Then Portland kind of popped up on the scene and is a major player. But they live within this like r- odd regime. And I've heard stories of bartenders really begging the state agency to allow them to import something like Averna you know, Sicilian liqueur or something. And the state has to actually go and purchase it in, like, large bulk. Um, even if they just want to use one bottle of it, right, or have it in, on the back shelf for, um, you know, for, you know, using a little bit in a particular cocktail. Um, I only bring this up because I just want, you know, the listeners to get a sense that, like, it just seems easy. It seems like, oh, you guys are just a grocery store and you're the, you know, you produce what goes into that, you know, that grocery store. But it's a lot more complicated than you would think getting something to shelf, right, from the producer, producer aspect to the retailer aspect. Um, so I actually wanted to shift gears just a little bit to talk about Newark. And I'm wondering what institutions, both public, governmental, you know, or private, um, do you work with, do you have relationships with? And, you know, how fruitful and how, you know, what do you get out of those relationships? Oh, that's simple. Yeah. I mean... The first, uh, first and foremost, would be the um, the IBID. The uh, IBID. Can the IBID, please? Sure. So, the, uh, so there's a number of business improvement districts that have a zone, and they're tasked with improving business in that zone. I'm outside of the IBID zone, but um, but could you, you, could you what does IBID stand for specifically? Uh, Ironbound Business Improvement yeah. District, and they're focused mostly on Ferry Street and the Ferry Street businesses, but they've taken a rather um, a broad approach. Their idea would be that what helps the city in general helps their district. So part of their effort is spent in their district, and part of their effort is spent outside of their district. Um, And they were very helpful in um, putting me in touch with other um, Newark groups uh, to help uh, kind of cross-promote. And one of the first things that they did was they put me in touch with the Newark Happening People, the Greater Newark um, um, Convention and Visitors Bureau. And they are responsible for basically promoting Newark as a destination um, as part of their um, work with the hotels and with the airport. And they decided that it would be a good idea And um, um, when they were approached by IBID to help promote a cocktail challenge. So last year we did a cocktail challenge, and the idea would be to try to raise the level of um, beverage programs across the city, encourage them to make innovative cocktails, you know, using our spirits or using local spirits, and to try to um, then cross-promote using um, the Instagram hashtag um, um, Drink Newark. And it was it was a success. I mean, we had 15 bars participate, um, five finalists, and we had an event um, at Clement's Place, which is a, um, a jazz venue um, without a liquor license. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we had you know we had a competition and there was a judged competition. It was highly attended, and it was you know the first kind of capacity building for that type of event in the city. And we hope to do something like that again in the future. But but um, 
Both groups uh, were very helpful. And then at the very beginning, um, the um, City Economic Development Corporation, they were helpful in providing um, letters of support that helped me get my zoning variants, and they were also helpful in putting me in touch with lenders who they knew wanted to invest in the city. So they were good for information, and they were good to help me deal with the sometimes Byzantine politics of the city. Yeah, for us, uh, the governing body we work with is the Newark Alcohol Beverage Control, mm -hmm. ABC, and um, Sergeant Torres and his team over there, and they've been great to work with, and uh, no problems there, knock on wood. And then locally, uh, you know, some of the same groups, Newark Downtown, uh, Economic Development, some of these people have helped introduce us to the right contacts at some local businesses, uh, people at Audible and Prudential and Rutgers, and uh, we've had um, a few parties and events we've done for them, and we've got some tastings coming up that we're really excited about for... Rutgers Law and some other stuff. So, yeah, everyone's been um, extremely helpful. And um, once again, the excitement's been great here. And uh, so we're, we're hopeful to, uh, to really build our business here and become part of the Newark Foundation. And I want to say people were um, warning me when I decided to open a business in Newark. They told me that uh, hands would be open, palms would want to be greased, Nothing like that happened. Yeah. Um, I approached at the time um, the East Ward and the Central Ward Council man and woman. They were supportive of the project. They made telephone calls on my behalf, never asked for a thing. Nobody ever asked for anything. They just wanted to be helpful to the extent that they could. We still have a very dense bureaucracy. I mean, New Jersey is a very regulated place, and it's sometimes difficult for a small business to navigate it, uh, you know, without a full-time team of, uh, you know, attorneys paving the way. Uh, but to the extent that they could help, they did. Yeah, yeah I, I echo that. I, I, when we were opening up here, I had people tell me certain things to expect. And I don't think they were people who had any firsthand uh, experience. It's just, you know, rumors and stuff that go around and people talk and they like to chit-chat about things they don't know anything about. Uh, but, yeah, since we've been here, everyone's been extremely helpful. And uh, it's been a good uh, experience. Just like a, to give people out there a sense of, you know, how much work and how, how um, what it takes to do this, can you just explain like a quick... You know, timeline of what, you know, from the germination of the idea. I know sometimes you have an idea in the back of your head, but the, when you actually put pen to paper mm -hmm. or, you know, foot to ground, literally, um, how long from, and I know it's very different between a retail and a distillery, but, um, you know, how long it takes from that to, you know, your opening day? Like, just to give people a sense of, like, how much work goes into that. Um, let's not start with the idea. Let's start with actually identifying a site. Yeah. Um, from when I identified a site, I had to go through a zoning variance process, I wasn't going to start build out until I had the zoning variants, and then I had the simultaneously I had the build out, the federal licensing and the state licensing, and at the completion of the build out I had the business license, and that basically broke up into a nine month section for zoning, six months for all my state and federal permits, and about two and a half months to get the city business license. So all in, we're talking about a year and a half, and the actual build out could have been done in about two months. Mm. Yeah, so um, I get a little bit of heat on this question uh, uh -huh. because uh, the Cool Vines Coming Soon paper was up in the atrium for a couple years. Yeah, I, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was a lot of people, once we opened the doors, they'd walk in and they're like, finally, it only took you two years. But um, I you think know, that was, was actually a direct quote from me. <laughs> yeah. But there was a lot of things happening um, you know, behind the curtain, as they say. So you know, there were things that had to be changed. There was mm -hmm. uh, some, some antiquated laws on the books. Um, but, you know, we worked with people, and over time we got everything done. So our, our situation was a little special, it was a little different. Um, you would hope it wouldn't take that long, 
but uh, you know it did but it was worth it you know and we, we had a vision and we knew where we wanted to go and uh, so we just stuck through it and everyone helped you know make that happen so uh, it took a while, but in the end, it was a success story with the people that helped us out. Yeah, and uh, to reinforce that, like uh, I, I'm really glad you guys did open because I think a lot of my experience um, with my hometown is um, a story of vaporware for you geeks out there. Vaporware is this concept in gaming where, like, you know, a thing is promised and it just never happens. And oftentimes in Newark, you see a coming soon sign. And I was deeply afraid, right? I'm not saying cool because there's other institutions that have done this too. And um, you see something go up and it doesn't open up and you get kind of afraid that it's not going to happen. Um, but when I saw the social media go up, I, I had a feeling that's when I knew mm-hmm. um, for sure that it was happening. And um, and I think it's very easy on my end to criticize. And I do apologize for being one of those critic- critics <laughs> and not understanding that there is a lot of hard work and a lot of you know red tape, for lack of a better term, you know, that you have to go through. And um, and it, it's not just like you can decide to open a liquor store and poof, you know, you just grab whatever you have in the warehouse and put it on shelves. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind that. So, uh, and, and it's true with the distillery too. You know, the outlays there are even crazier because you actually have to like have these um, uh, stills, which are just mm-hmm. giant metal ovens essentially um, and, and have them up and running. Um but I actually also wanted to ask, you know, on the sort of, you know, looking forward, um, what is it that you would like from the community at large? Um, what what support are, are you guys looking for? I don't mean like a handout or anything, but I mean like what is it um, that you want the community to do? Not necessarily institutions, but also just in general. What do you want to see happen in Newark to see that you will, you know, you as businesses will flourish? Yeah, um, I'm excited uh, for uh, the school year to come around. I feel like there's more people starting to come back into that neighborhood uh, we have a lot of events uh, scheduled in September and October uh, with uh, you know with uh, Rutgers and with the uh, audible and uh, some other people um, we're growing every week uh, we see more and more people coming through our doors every week I think the words getting out a little bit and um, we're just now starting to hit our stride in some ways uh, after a couple you know almost uh, almost three months now uh, so this is a this is an exciting time at Cool Vines. It's exciting for the people of Newark uh, that that are looking for something a little bit different. Uh, if you haven't been to our store, mm-hmm. you probably won't recognize uh, you know some things when you come in. Uh, we deal mostly with uh, like low inter- low intervention wines, uh, craft beer, craft spirits. Uh, so not your mass produced uh, corporate spirits. So um, yeah, it's just it's fun for me to see you know people's idea about who we are change they come in with maybe a certain uh set of ideas about what we do and then when they leave they get it and they see like okay you know i I see what these guys are doing now i can buy budweiser anywhere Mm. but if i want to get a nice craft uh spirit uh, i can come here if i want to get a nice craft beer if i want to get a a a wine that's you know organic or biodynamic or you know no no additional sulfites added that kind of stuff they can come and get it so it's a it's just a different shop and i'm glad to bring that kind of vibe to the city can i just ask you a quick question so what do you do when someone comes in and asks for hennessy so that happens a lot um uh, every day uh so what i do is i explain to them uh like some of the options that we have and uh you know we have like the brisson vsop and it's been made by the same family in france for four generations and uh you know if you if you try it and buy it i i'm pretty certain you're gonna like it a lot more than hennessy mm-hmm. and some people take me up on that and they come back and they you know you're right this is really good so we have for most anything people look for, we have something that's, you know, a few things that are comparable. 
Uh, now, there's some things that just, you know, there's not an apples to apples, you know, mm -hmm. replacement for. Uh, but Hennessy, you know, there's a lot of good craft uh, cognacs out there. Mm -hmm. So we, we have options for people like that. Yeah, no, I would ask the same thing. I, I could, consumers should ask questions about what they're drinking. They should look at, you know, where they're from, um, what's being put in a cocktail. Uh, these mysterious well spirits that you never see the label of um, is not something that should be in a, you know, in a $12 cocktail. Yeah. Uh, you should ask what's in it and, and, and why are they putting it in it. And the bartender should be able to talk about what they're making. And, you know, and, and the sales associate should be able to talk about what bottle you're buying. Uh, don't rely on you know, mass multi-million dollar marketing mm -hmm. campaigns to inform you about what you're drinking, rely on the people who actually are, you know, tasting it and sampling dozens of spirits a, a week and giving you their recommendations. Uh, work with them because they want to work with you and they want to make drinking culture, um, you know, more sophisticated in this town. And that doesn't necessarily mean more expensive. No, actually, I think it's in a lot of ways the opposite. Uh, with a lot of these smaller producers, they don't have massive marketing budgets, right? They're just, you know, they're working on their craft. They're making a great spirit, and they're putting it out, and uh, their money is invested in the product, not the marketing of the product. So a lot of times you can get really high-quality uh, craft-made spirits, wines, beer, and pay less than you're paying for uh, mass-produced uh, products. And the trick with cocktails, I can tell you, as someone who makes them all the time, it's not <laughs> about spending you know fifty dollars on a bottle of something. You often the thirty-dollar range is where you get like the sweet spot of like high quality and um, um, but also uh, not like you're not blasting because a lot of cocktails you end up blasting through a lot of the subtleties by adding and mixing and diluting and doing other things to to the beverage in, in order to create something that's greater than the sum of its parts. But um, you don't you know using a fifty dollar bottle at that point or even a hundred actually a better example would be a hundred dollar bottle of something would be a waste. Which is why I always laugh when it, like people for my birthday buy me a bottle of Ciroc and I'm like I'm not going to sip this I'm not going to use it in a cocktail because it's just it feels too expensive to to, to use in a cocktail right. Um, and which is why I laugh when you talked about the brandy, because oftentimes people will go with Hennessy. But for me, I'm like, I go for Pierre Ferrand, right, usually. And that's like one of my favorites. And it's nicely priced. Um, but the, the, the theme I'm getting from both of you, hopefully, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you want to see a more informed consumer base, right? One that's more curious, perhaps, right? And open to, Absolutely. you know, not your major um, brands that tend to be owned by what? InBev and Diageo, right? Um, or I guess LVMH being the third big one there. But, um, you know, people wanting to look at local stuff, stuff that, um, that who, you know, it's made by the sweat of someone's brow as opposed to in some large industrial capacity. Yeah, and, and, you know, the farmers who are growing the grapes are the same people who are putting the wine in the bottle. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's an investment from ground to the bottle. And, um, you know, when you can find products like that where people are putting, you know, their life into it every day, mm -hmm. that's where you get the, the really great products. And a lot of times, again, at a really good value. You know. yeah. I mean, I know who grows my corn. Her name is Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Mary the corn lady. Um, is she a Jersey corn lady? Or is no, it? she's a New York corn lady. Uh, Trader using New York corn. <laughs> um, actually, let's just skip to something fun. So uh, my question is, uh, favorite spirit, favorite cocktail? <sighs> oh, my favorite beer. I'll, I'll tack that on as well. So, so does it, Can it be a beer type, or are we talking about specific I'll beer? let you go with beer type. But if you can name a specific, just in case that you guys carry it at Cool Vines. Um, I don't want to show too much favoritism. Yeah. That's right. They're all your children. Right? <laughs> um, I don't know. It really changes a lot. Um, I was into, like, double IPAs, Northeast IPAs, but now I'm kind of going into West Coast IPAs more. I want mm. that kind of, like, hoppy, bitter 
Uh, so I don't know. It's it's some form of uh, India Pale Ale. Yeah, nice. I mean, I love what's coming out of the New Middleton Distillery. They were built, if people aren't familiar, there was consolidation in Ireland and all of these hundreds of distilleries consolidated into one. And this one distillery held the promise of being able to make um, a spirit with a profile to match any of the distilleries that closed. And instead they made millions of gallons of Jameson. Um, <laughs> and recently they started to uh, push those wonderful flavors that they were built to be able to make. And they're putting out amazing pot still whiskeys that blow my mind every time a new one is introduced. Um, so really my favorite is the last one that I bought. And right now it's, um, it's Powers John's Lane. It's amazing. Mm. Um, they've really influenced what I'm doing with my whiskey. Um, my whiskey, if, if you're not familiar, is a um, is a style of Irish pot still whiskey that uses corn as the unmalted portion of the grain bill, so it'll never taste exactly like those whiskeys, but it's something that has some of the character of a bourbon in an Irish whiskey, and um, in terms of those two poles, mm -hmm. um, I lean heavily towards the Irish whiskey. Nice. Um, so cocktail, yeah. um, I live in the Ironbound, Caipirinha. Caipirinha, oh my god. So it's funny, uh, so I was about to talk, we may or may not be drinking while we're doing this, um, and we have, we have here a, not in the studio, but right outside the studio, a bottle of um, Avua, Cachaça, which a caipirinha is um, long story behind that drink, but it's essentially a rustic drink from um, southern Brazil um, that is lime. Uh, and if you're going to be really authentic, you cut out the middle part of the lime, the sort of white string that's in it. Uh, you muddle that with raw sugar, uh, so a little more has a little more molasses content than you know you, the kind of Domino sugar you buy in the supermarket. Uh, and you have this thing called cachaça, which is a fresh cane juice spirit. Similar in the same family as rum, but rum's made from molasses. This is actually made from what you get from sugarcane. Sorry, long story. <laughs> but it's a very amazing uh, Brazilian cocktail. You shake it, you pour it, you drink it, and watch soccer games and root for um, the beautiful yellow and green team. Um, but I also brought a bottle of avua, which is this beautiful cachaça that's aged in um, uh, amburana wood, which is this kind of tropical wood. And usually when you think of aging spirits, almost every single aged spirit, whether it's a brandy, a bourbon, um, an Irish whiskey, a scotch, they're aged in oak, right? It's like the one tree we go to. And there's a whole world of trees out there. Obviously, some are poisonous. We don't use them. But others um, impart other flavors that are not like vanilla, tannin flavors. And this one has banana, cloves, warm spice kind of thing going on. And it's always amazing to see when people are kind of pushing the boundaries, right? On the flip side, for my favorite beer, um, I'm very, very like basic uh, when it comes to beers. Um, I, I mean, I love, I experiment. You know, I try my sours, I try my um, uh, my IPAs, and I do love very hoppy IPAs. But you know, it's seasons right around the corner. It's Oktoberfest, and mm -hmm. those malty beers. I mean, you know, sometimes you have to go back to formula, right? To to original. You know, that's what beer was for a good, you know, thousand years. Was just a very simple, very malty, slightly bitter, only slightly. Um, drink and uh, it just pairs at what, the amazing thing about Oktoberfest beers particularly the ones that are like more craft brewery um, you know they, they pair well with almost any food whether it's you know really rich German food or light grilled meats even I think can go well with the Oktoberfest so I was very both excited to see a bunch of Bavarian blue flags <laughs> at the local um, at one of the local liquor stores, um, but at the same time uh, freaking out because that also means fall is coming. So mm -hmm. I had like a bit of a meltdown. Um, and I didn't answer the spirits question. Yeah, no cocktail. spirits. You want to hear spirits and uh, cocktail? Yeah, too. My co cocktail would be the Mexican martini. What? Oh, tell, what are the ingredients? So a Mexican martini, which is um, something you will find all over Texas, is a martini made with tequila. 
Um, and but pretty much in the same way, just replace vodka or gin with tequila. Uh, put some uh, olive juice in it. Shake it up. Uh, it's it's and you know maybe a little bit more lime than you would have, and um, a lot more lime than you would have in a. But you put a little yeah a little lime in there too. But uh, yeah, very popular in Austin. Uh, get them everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it's it's hard to find here. I mean, you just explain it to a bartender; they'll make it for you. But you know, it's also hard to find here. But I'm sure you can find it in Austin all over the places. Michelada, which I love. oh yeah, uh, Michelada is everywhere. It's basically a Bloody Mary with Mexican beer, um, but it's, it's it's more than that actually. Really, I, I think it's like lime, actually doing a disservice. Lime and pepper S- and, and spices, and spices, and, uh, and just it makes beer so fun. Yeah, and it's like um, I've. I once did that instead of dinner, and it worked. <laughs> I was at a bar in Manhattan, and uh, I just got like three micheladas in a row, and it was like like having a nice light gazpacho. And don't beer. buy the the pre canned micheladas. No, 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 no. God, no. Buy buy a good beer, buy a good tomato juice, and make them yourself. You'll be yeah. a little Worcestershire. So, what's your favorite spirit? <sighs> I mean, I, probably gin. Uh, to me, gin mm. can be so interesting, and you can do so many different things with it, and so many different botanicals. And I, uh, I know, like a lot of my friends would probably say whiskeys and bourbons, and I think that's like the go-to for a lot of men. It's a very manly cocktail. Yeah. If you have something, I'm sip, sipping on some uh, bourbon neat. But uh, no, for me, it's gin. Gin. I, I love making different cocktails with gin. I think there's a lot of different things you can do with gin. Mm. All the aromatics are uh, just. Uh, you know, you look at uh, some of the stuff that uh, Gil's even put Oh, I was going to say, yeah. so, like, if you want to go see how crazy you can go with gin, tell me about the gin colada <laughs> at All Points West. Oh, wow. Well, I tell you, um, gin has an amazing history that kind of mirrors American cocktail history. Uh, gin starts as a Holland style, which is a rich, malty, um, and very oily, unctuous uh, spirit. And then you move on to All Tom, which is very sweet. They changed the way they distilled to make it cheaper, and they ended up getting um, um, a turpentine flavor. They got these terpenes extracted due to the change in the way they distilled, and they covered them over with sugar. And then they learned to love the terpenes and made the dry London style. And American cocktail um, culture parallels that. Mm. And you go from richer gin cocktails all the way up to the martini, which is, you know, the most austere of gin cocktails. And I decided to make a gin that had a lot of the lost richness. So I use a very low maceration proof, a very low distillation proof, and I add some licorice for a botanical sweetness. And I think that it gives uh, amazing expression to the whole kind of pantheon of American gin cocktails up until the dry martini. Yeah, and just to help with the listeners, um, if you haven't, if you had, I think the problem I have with people um, is that they often try gins once. It'll be Tanqueray, which is not bad, and Beefeater, which is actually, I think is actually excellent, an excellent London dry. But they'll try Beef, uh, Beefeater, Tanqueray, or something like that, and just say, "I'm never doing gin again" because they're just they, they think that all gin's going to be like that. It's going to be very citrusy. It's going to be very um, harsh. But yours is very different. So, and I want people to understand if you haven't tried gin. Uh, if you have tried gin, sorry, but yeah. you don't want to try it again, I do recommend you know actually trying Gill's gin because it's just different. It's still within the. It's still technically a London Dry, right? Or there's, no? There, there's no sugar in it, and it's not distilled from malt, so technically it's a London Dry. Some people call it a New Botanical. I like to call it a Mid Atlantic style gin. Oh, that's nice. And the reason yeah. for that is there's there's two other uh, gin makers in the Mid Atlantic region that are also making a softer, richer gin uh, without going all the way back to uh, you know a um, uh, a, a Ineva. 
Oh, who is so? Is it New York Distilling Company? Or? So New York Distilling Company's Dorothy Parker. Yeah, which I love. I love which, that which I love, and also the Greylock Gin out of Berkshire Valley Distilling. And I have uh, not tried that one. That's interesting. And yeah, so so I, I again, everybody everybody wants to outdo their predecessor. I think I'm a little bit softer, a little bit more unctuous, without being out of balance. But those two gins were definitely um, guide stones on the way to what I wanted to do. Nice. Um, did I ask? I asked you both about cocktails. Oh, I didn't mention my favorite cocktail, which is the Mai Tai. Um, I, Gil has tried my Mai Tai. Um, I, I go back to the original Trader Vic's formula, which is a bit tricky because they don't make the rum that you're supposed to use with it. Um, but I, uh, I do make my own Orjat, which is this lovely almond uh, syrup. Um, you can buy it in bottles, but uh, I really like mine because I toast the almonds, which makes it brown instead of the usual kind of white, creamy color you get usually with Orjat. And it's just lime juice and um, uh, some type of orange liqueur. I use a dry curacao, but I, th I think you could also try to use um, other types of curacao. Um, and it just get this like really, I think people think of Mai Tais, I think the sweet, syrupy, orange, bright pink drink, but it's actually a very dry, amber colored, you know, beautiful, tart but also you know complex cocktail and I, and I love it for that i mean orgia is is a beautiful thing to mix with especially mm -hmm. with gin yeah um, i think an army navy is an amazing cocktail i think a saturn is an amazing cocktail mm -hmm. um it it, it it the oiliness brings out both the botanicals in the gin and the funkiness in the rum uh, so it really highlights the spirit that you're using uh, i i i go through a ton of the stuff um is there anything else you guys want to share about um about alcohol here in Newark or in general, any um, any things you want to announce? Um, any spirits coming on the market? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we introduced um, two new spirits. We have a black pepper vodka, and we actually distill with the black pepper. Mm -hmm. So it's not sharp. Um, it's not artificial. Um, you know, it's not like um, um, a lot of pepper vodkas that were taken off the market years ago. This is a uh, um, oily, full with pepper oils, vodka, that makes an amazing uh, four to one or three to one martini. It's delicious. And then we decided to play with a different type of expression of pepper. Uh, we do a pink pepper gin, where we actually infuse the pepper, so we do get some of that sharpness. And we build upon that sharpness with a little bit of sourness from hibiscus. And those two um, are, you know, they look the same, you know, pink pepper, black pepper, but they're radically different spirits, and I'm really having a lot of fun playing with both of them. Yeah, I mean, technically, pink pepper is not, not of the pepper. same family. Right. Yeah, it's, it's actually a South American bush thing. That so we, we, we have to use the Madagascar variety. The South American one is not, uh, is not yet grass. Oh, really? Uh, generally regarded as safe by the FDA. Yeah, yeah. That, sorry, yeah, that's uh, what the FDA bans a lot. One of my favorite spirits um, has uh, an ingredient that's banned by the FDA, which is kind of sad. Um, it's also a pink pepper gin, funny enough. But they use this thing called tonga bean, which they've banned since, like, the turn of the century. Um, turn, the, it, turn of the last century. Turn of the last century. Sorry, yeah, not, not, not the millennium, but um, 1900s. Um, John? For, for me... Um, I'm interested to hear from you guys. We haven't discussed wine, really. Oh, my God, yes. You know, and uh, pretty much... Uh, Which is sad, because I grew up in a wine-drinking <laughs> family. In fact, I'm the odd duck, because I'm the one who's drinking scotch at Christmas instead of, like, yeah, um, wine. Um, you know, that's, like, our bread and butter at Cool Vines. You know, we really made our name for the wine selection that we've curated. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, what kind of wines do you guys drink? What do you guys like? Uh, is, do you want to go first? Um, sh sure. I mean... I like really um, spicy Tempranillos. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure I did not pronounce that correctly. Mm -hmm. 
How do I, how do you pronounce it? Do, well, give it to the wine guy over here. The wine guy. Oh, I say Tempranillo. Tempranillo. And uh, I, I, I like, <laughs> I like big American oaky Chardonnays. I know that they're out of fashion, but it's, there's, there's no wrong taste, man. Everyone's taste is yeah. unique. <laughs> I think for me, like, I feel like I'm betraying form, so I'm of Portuguese descent. But I find the Portuguese shine with their fortified wines, uh, particularly Madeiras. I don't know if you guys are carrying Madeiras yet, but. Um, I think the Madeira market's really growing. It's getting really fascinating. Um, and it was the original spirit of the U.S. This is what people forget. The, the original, like, wine spirit of America was Madeira's. It's what was toasted at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It's what was smuggled into this country. Um, actually, it wasn't smuggled as much because um, there was a preferential trading relationship between Britain, which the U.S. had a... Um, had access to because they were part of the British Empire, but then lost when um, when the Treaty of Paris was signed. But um, for me, I like my northern Italian wines. So my Amarone, which is a, a really bitter, great wine from northern Veneto. Um, but I also like this uh, wine that has, I, I don't think you guys carry it, but it's definitely at Aster because Aster has everything. Um, it's called Hilberg Pascaro, which is this amazing Piemontese, like interesting red wine. Um, I also like Bordeaux, kind of basic like that. I like my French wines. Um, oh, and my Germans, um, particularly Austrian Grüneveltlina. That's a really great um, mm -hmm. white wine. No, but for me, uh, reds, I'm really partial to Pinot Noirs. It's mm. it's it's a grape that, depending on where it's uh, grown in the world, it's very uh, terroir driven. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of really good stuff coming out of Oregon right now. But you know, the classic Burgundy Pinot Noirs are mm. always can't go wrong with that. Uh, whites, you know, I'm I'm with you, Gil. Like I, I still like Chardonnay. A lot of people, uh, you know, won't move into different areas and don't tell their things. But I'm getting more back into French Chardonnay, and less of like that hard new oak that we use here in America, and you know, a little bit more of that buttery feel. But uh, yeah, so. I felt like we're not we're not paying enough attention to wine. Yeah, no, and I, and I feel and it's totally my fault. I dropped the ball with the wine thing. It's um, it's funny because I think a lot of um. It's weird because this is not, definitely not true, as I'm about to say it, but like I feel like a lot of the driving energy in the U.S. has been behind beer for, for, foremost because that's where like a lot of expansion has happened. Um, because I, I think beer you pretty much can make anywhere, and in the way that wine, mm. you're limited to very particular areas right. of the country. Uh, and if you want to do really competitive wine, you're pretty much limited to California and some parts of the West Coast. I mean, the Willamette Valley in Oregon is amazing. Yeah, and but like you know, New Jersey wines are not you know they're not going to be Judgment of Paris level kind of stuff, right? Where you know the French are fooled that <laughs> that these are really amazing. Um, sadly. Um, but um, and then distilleries are the same way, right? Like there's a lot of energy around distilleries, and I keep forgetting that wine has been, you know, uh, also in America uh, growing and yeah. um, and a, and a major destination thing to do too. Going out to some Sonoma, to Napa, to Oregon, even. Um, I mean, in my neighborhood, um, it's dominated by very poorly made sangrias. Oh yeah, um, and so um, so so I've almost steered away from wine because whatever is the most popular in your neighborhood is probably not what's the yeah. best in your neighborhood. Um, but but that's just because of where I live. Well, my dad my dad drank Carlo Rossi and still does drink Carlo Rossi. <laughs> I mean, like that's where my family. So I'd say that's be. that's probably one of the most interesting things that we do at Cool Vines, though, is like every every few months we meet as a team and we have a wine council and mm. we have all these different distributors present their wines to us and so we get to taste through and rate and grade and and the vast majority of them don't make our shelves so you know we're every single wine you see in our store we've a team of people has approved 
So if you're into a certain style and you see it on the shelves and you ask yourself, well, is this good or not? I don't know. Um, you know, we've, we've given it our seal of approval and we don't look at, you know, other ratings or scales like that. It's just, what do we like? What do we find mm-hmm. is a good quality, but also something that's a good value. Can we sell this to our customers? Mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of our, uh, operations to, to go through and take the time to curate all of our wine. Nice. Um, so, uh, it's coming on time. So I just want to move around and ask, um, the question I ask every single episode, which is what are you most excited about in newer? I, know. <laughs> I mean, there's so much. It's it, it's a city that I've been in for 16 years, and the past four years have seen incredibly rapid change. Um, a different type of restaurant groups are moving in. Not that the old restaurant groups had any problems with them, but there's there, there's now a, 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 a diversity of, of food culture here that's really exciting. I think the return of supermarkets to um, to large portions of the city is exciting. This is a place where you know, um, you know, it was the end destination for hundreds of thousands of people in the Great Migration, and due to the lack of ingredients, uh, um, a food culture of you know of, a, of an entire group of people was kind of lost, and that's coming back. Um, so I, I like the idea that people are cooking. I like the idea that people are making cocktails at home, mm-hmm. um, and I like just just the same changes that everybody else likes. Businesses coming into town. Um, when I moved to town, I told people I moved to Newark. They asked me, you know, what was wrong with me, uh, whether I needed, uh, you know, help with uh, substance abuse. You know, I mean, I mean, really, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the reasons for moving to Newark were not see, viewed valid in the rest of the country. And um, and now I tell people I moved to Newark and they're excited. Um, and that that's good. I mean, really, the perception has changed and the way that people live here has changed. You know, economic expansion, low unemployment has changed people's lives. And it's just fun that this is not... But, um, you know, as there, there's still pockets of misery in this town, but they're shrinking. And, um, and I like that they're shrinking, and I hope they continue to shrink until they're gone. John? Yeah, for, for me, it's just the, the day-to-day, the meeting of people and uh, seeing, uh, seeing people's faces as they learn about what we do and just growing in the city and doing more stuff here in the community. Uh, so we're still like in that honeymoon phase with Newark. So everyone's happy to see me and I'm happy to see everyone. So uh, right now it's just a really exciting time in our store. And I'm just looking forward to meeting more people every day. Mm. Uh, for me, it's uh, if you walk in Penn Station or frankly anywhere now, all the ads went up for the VMAs. Probably the <laughs> most important award show to come here to Newark. I mean, we, before that, I think we had the closest analog would be the uh, NBA draft. I think it was the NBA draft. I'm not a good sports person. But it was some kind of draft for some kind of sport was here a, a few years ago. And the VMAs are going to be here. So I'm going to keep my eye out because I want to see a celebrity. Um, <laughs> and I want to get there, like, selfie. Um, Something might or not might not be happening with my spirits at the VMA. Yay! That's all I'm going to say. Keep keep your eyes open on social media and you will see um so let me um that's it for this episode i would like to thank our guests uh gail and john uh this is manny antunes host and producer of the pod and market podcast editing and sound engineering by by phrase uh podcast logo and design provided by robert conti additional creative input by semantica taste pod intro and outro music by dan myler if you have a subject you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast please email podandmarket at gmail.com or contact the pod through social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'm going to end with a quote uh, supplied here by Gail from um, a book called Swing City, Newark Nightlife, 1925 to 1950, um, by Barbara Kukla. And she basically researched all the great um, speakeasies and swing and jazz bars in Newark. 
Nightlife flourished, in part because Newark was a beer town. The nation's third leading brewer in the 1920s, home of the Big Five, Ballantyne, Hensler, Kruger, Fagenspan, and Vandermeyer. During Prohibition, Newark was wide open, its speakeasies accessible for the price of a membership card. Although the Volstead Act, energized by illegal rum and whiskey running, took a toll on the beer trade, Newark still had nearly a thousand saloons in 1938, one for every 429 residents, the most per capita of any American city. Thank you. <laughs>